News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this next story has uh, recovered documents, it has murder, it has many twists and turns, and a lot of questions, which we are going to try and answer. It all has to do with the May 21st, 1991 murder of religious professor Yuan Culliano. This standing out as one of Chicago's strangest murders. And how is it connected to Romanian-born scholar Mircea Iliadi? How are the two connected and what are those outstanding questions? Well, joining me to talk more about that is Dr. Bruce Lincoln, author of Secrets, Lies and Consequences, also Professor Emeritus of Religious History at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. Dr. Lincoln, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, there is so much about this story and so many details, so we'll try to get to as many as we can. But can you start, tell us a little bit about how these two individuals are connected? Sure. Um, Mircea Iliada was a, a, an outstanding Romanian scholar who um, left Romania after the Second World War, um, spent some time in Paris, and ultimately came to the University of Chicago in the mid-1950s, where he established an international reputation as just a brilliant synthesizer and original theorist about the, the nature of religious experience and expression throughout the world. Uh, he um, was, was an extraordinary uh, researcher and wrote beautifully, wrote tons of books, and was probably the most influential uh, scholar in the study of religion. Ioan Culianu was a generation younger uh, and was born in Romania, grew up in communist Romania, where you know, he aspired to be a scholar like Iliata. He read some of his work, was you know, deeply influenced, and ultimately left Romania, uh, claimed political asylum in Italy in the uh, early 1970s, and made contact with Iliata and really apprenticed himself to him, um, became his disciple and his chief defender when Iliata's life history became controversial. And upon Iliata's death, became his successor at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. Uh, he was a fine scholar in his own right. Uh, his interests were not quite as wide-ranging, and his brilliance was not quite as great as, as his mentors. But he really was, was a, a fine scholar himself. And uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, in uh, 1991, he was quite shockingly murdered at the Divinity School, and uh, that that. You know, murder remains unsolved to this day. Um, there were connections, you know, um, personal, intellectual, and um, some open and some less than open between the two men, but they were close friends, and, um, you know, one was the other's inspiration and mentor. And what about the the uncovering of these documents or or some information that came about that that suggested well brought forward some information about Iliadi's uh, troubled you could say or, or say a questionable past? Oh, troubled is an understatement. <laughs> questionable is a euphemism. Um, his, uh, in the 1930s. Iliata, as a young man, was already a major public figure and, and hailed as the, the leading intellectual of his generation in Romania. Romania had a very troubled history and a very powerful fascist movement, which you know, called itself by two names, uh, the Iron Guard 
and the Legion of the Archangel Michael. And Iliada became involved in that in, in ways that for a long time were hidden. Um, but he, he was fairly deeply involved in that movement. Uh, and he left Romania after the war for feel, fear of political retribution you know, under the new regime. And he kept his past you know, very, very closely hidden. Uh, in 1937-38, to 38, he wrote 15 articles in enthusiastic support of, of the Iron Guard, which was a you know, fascist, anti-democratic, violently nationalist, somewhat imperialist, and virulently uh, anti-Semitic movement that was responsible for the assassination of three prime ministers of Romania and scores of other political murders. Um, and those articles you know, remained hidden. Uh, under communist Romania, they were kept in one or two libraries, and you had to ask permission to see them. And if you asked permission, you immediately became a subject of state surveillance. And so few people looked for them, and even fewer knew about them. As rumors of Iliada's past came to be better known, and there were some articles published first in Israel and then in Italy in the early 1970s that called attention to his past and, and caused you know, quite a controversy. Those articles became the, the centerpiece, the, the smoking gun, the, the piece of evidence that would clinch the case for those who you know, were, were most critical of him, but they were very hard to access. Kulianu ultimately came to possess uh, English translations of those articles that had, had been made by a close friend and colleague of his. The week before his death, he received death threats um, that terrified him. And he gave those articles to, you know, the fellow who had the office next to his and asked him, you know, to keep them safe, you know, should anything happen to him. And a week later, he was, he was murdered. Uh, the colleague, Mark Krupnik, really didn't know what to do with the things. Um, you know, his areas of expertise were far removed from anything that gave him, you know, insight into what these articles were, what they meant, what their significance was. But he held on to them tightly. And when I joined the faculty, he gave them to me. And I read over them, um, and honestly, I felt that they were inconclusive, that they were you know, damning enough that one couldn't simply continue to defend Iliada, but they really did not say much on the issue of anti-Semitism. He, he carefully avoided, with the exception of, uh, I think, three or four passages, uh, saying much of anything about anti-Semitism. Uh, he was blaming foreigners, he was blaming corrupt politicians, he was uh, blaming a lot of others in Romania, um, and most of the discussion was about was he anti-Semitic or wasn't he, and I thought, I thought the articles you know, were unlikely to settle those debates, and I really didn't want to get drawn into those debates at that point in my own career. I had other work I wanted to do. When I retired, I was cleaning out my office, and you know, it was a miserable job. And quite by mistake, I threw out the file that had those papers in it. And oh. you know, uh, <laughs> um, about a week later, I realized what I had done, and I was absolutely guilt-stricken. I, I, you know, this was a dying colleague's last wish. These were you know, crucial evidence and an important debate. And I felt you know, that I had you know, just been hopelessly irresponsible and that the only decent thing to do was to learn Romanian, find the originals, translate them myself, 
study them, you know, try to figure out just, you know, what their importance and significance was. And I spent the next five years doing that. And um, the book, The Results, uh, is my attempt to make sense of, first, what Iliada's politics were in the troubled interwar period and how that affected his life and work thereafter. Second, how careful he was to hide that past and what consequences that had for everyone around him, particularly for Kulianu, who emerged as his foremost defender and most devoted disciple. And third, why it was Kulianu was so concerned with the safety of those papers when he was in fear for his life. Uh, and, and I'm led to think that you know, in some way, those who were responsible for his murders were outraged at his desire, which, which is documented in letters he wrote over the last year of his life, to try to publish those uh, articles uh, against the wishes of Professor Iliada's widow, who was fierce in, in her defense of him. And, you know, there was just growing controversy and tension around what, what would he do with these articles? Could he publish them? Couldn't he? He made three or four attempts to publish them. And that, that this was the one thing he tried to save as he faced you know, his, his murder convinces me that they played a very important role in the murder itself. Well, what a commitment on your part to getting this story and telling this story and uh, fascinating and uh, that you've been able to put it all into that book. Uh, Dr. Lincoln, we'll have to leave it there for this morning, but I appreciate you coming on the show so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Bruce Lincoln. He is the author of that book that has the story he just told and many more details. It is called Secrets, Lies, and Consequences. He is also a professor emeritus of religious history at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Jill. No shortage of things to talk about this morning. And uh, first up, what's going to happen with the elected park board? Well, I don't venture too often into civic mm. affairs, but I think in this case it's warranted. I mean, partly just because of the drama, right? I covering governments for a long time. In my experience, they usually call press conferences to announce they're expanding, not to announce they're actually getting rid of some institution. So that in itself is rare, especially with an NDP government provincially and a liberal government federally. So I give Ken Sim credit for drama and boldness, uh, not least uh, kicking three people out of his caucus uh, first thing in the morning. So that's interesting. But the the reason I, I'll take an interest in this as somebody who writes about provincial politics is because Ken Sim needs help to get this done. He's going to ask the provincial government to amend the Vancouver Charter, which is actually a provincial law, to allow uh, the end of the road for the elected park board. And it got me thinking about something, Jill, and it's... The last time the provincial government, a mayor, asked the provincial government for a helping hand to do something, and that, of course, would be Surrey, and that was a policing issue, and that's turned into one hell of a mess for the provincial government. It wishes they'd never heard about this. They still haven't sorted it out. So my guess is when this request lands on the desk of Premier David Eby, uh, he and his advisors might have a little chat about 
should we just do this? Do we owe Ken Sim a favor? And is there any way this thing could come back to bite us if we let this happen? I think it provincial caution is warranted. It's going to be interesting to see what the New Democrats do with this request. Is it possible, do you think, and, and given what's happening with Surrey and how long and drawn out that has become, is it possible they go the safe route and say, OK, th- we get what you want to do, but we're going to we're not going to just rubber stamp it. We are going to put it to a referendum. Uh, you know, I think they should have a serious discussion about this. I mean, as I understand Mayor Sim, and he's got the votes of council to do this, his intention would be presumably to get this done before the next civic election so that it's already happened, so that the next time Vancouver voters go to the polls in, what would it be, 2020. Let's see, they were elected last year in 2022, so 2026. So the next time they go to the polls in Vancouver, uh, there wouldn't, they wouldn't be, people wouldn't be voting on a park board because it would be a done deal. I think the question that ought to interest the provincial cabinet is, is there any way that can go sideways? Because remember initially with the Surrey policing thing, and the analogy isn't perfect here, but the initially with the Surrey policing thing was it was going to be done, right? There wasn't the province when it first went along with Doug McCallum's plan and said, okay, we'll move down the road on that. It never occurred to them that by the time the next civic election rolled around, one of the supporters of the plan would have defected, would then go on to defeat McCallum in the election and then try to reverse direction. So I think the provincial government would want to bulletproof itself on this issue. And Jill, there's a couple of ways they could do that. I mean, they could just simply turn down Sim, but I don't think they'll do that. Uh, They could say, uh, would you consider having a referendum on this if we do this? Like, would you agree to a referendum if we approve the change in the charter? And another question, which I think people in Vancouver should go, um, and the mayor claims this is going to save some staggering amount of money. I don't see how it will necessarily save that. You're getting rid of the elected park board. You won't be paying park commissioners anymore. But I don't know as though they're going to change the park board, uh, the park bureaucracy, uh, whether they're going to merge the two with the city, whether or not they're going to have a whole bunch of layoffs. I'll believe that when I see it. I mean, I have to say that Sim has not, and his council majority have not demonstrated that they're particularly good at holding down costs. They've been approving some pretty big tax increases. So I think there's reason for the provincial government to say, just hang on there, Uh, Mayor Sim. We we know you've worked with us on housing, and no question the New Democrats get along better with Ken Sim than they ever did with Kennedy Stewart. So they're not opposed to the Sim government. But uh, yeah, I think uh, given uh, the way we things went in Surrey, and as I say, the analogy isn't perfect, there is certainly grounds for the provincial government to just say, before we rubber stamp this, we'd like a meeting to discuss the implications, and we want to see your plan to get this done so we don't have to deal with this after the next civic election. Right, because I think that even the, the timeline of about uh, being able to do it in six months was thrown out yesterday, which seems pretty speedy. But like you said, the last thing they would want is say it drags out and out. Here we are campaigning for the next civic election, and there's a party saying we're the ones who are going to bring the park board back. Well, sure, because, you know, if you're going to defeat the incumbent in an election, the first thing you do is you look around to see the decisions the incumbent has made on which they're vulnerable. 
So you're right, Jill. One of the organizing principles for the people that already are thinking, how can we replace Ken Sim in the next civic election in Vancouver is going to be, well, what if we take a different position in the park board? You know, what if we campaign for democracy and elected park board or even just put pressure on to have a referendum on the issue so that the people that voted to elect a park board, and in Vancouver, they've been electing park boards since what, 1888 or something like that. So Mm -hmm. it's not like this is some kind of new invention. I've often asked myself, why do we need an elected park board in Vancouver? And certainly when you see how they handle things like the Stanley Park train, it's reasonable. Like, what the hell are these people doing? (laughs) But having said all that, uh, you know, I think uh, you'll probably see the opponents uh, in the next little bit come out and start mounting the case against it. And they may appeal to the New Democrats and say, you have to bring this legislation in because it has to be enacted by the legislature. So it would be in the spring session. Government has a busy agenda in the spring session. It is getting ready for an election. And would there be any downside to simply saying, well, you know, uh, we'll do this if uh, Vancouver agrees to hold a referendum on it. And whether or not Ken Sim wants to turn that into a political football to be whacked and have him over the head or around uh, between now and the next civic election, I think... uh, He may need a bigger favor from the provincial government than he's necessarily going to get. Continuing now with the view from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, an announcement came out yesterday that one of BC's best best known public servants is going to retire. Yes, and one of BC's most independent public servants. So Lisa LaPointe will not be seeking a fourth term when the current one, she's been in her third term, expires. It's a cabinet appointee. Uh, You serve at the pleasure of the government. They can not renew your term or they can even get rid of you. Uh, So independence in those kinds of jobs requires a certain boldness and I think... Lisa LaPointe meets the standard. Independence is telling the government what it needs to hear, not what it wants to hear. And I think, as I said, Jill, on that one, you've got to say that Lisa LaPointe was a tremendous public servant, even if you don't always agree with what she said or what she advised. And certainly, Jill, at times the provincial government didn't agree with what she said and what she advised. Uh, she, um, but people will likely remember uh, her comments during the heat dome uh, when yeah. uh, she spoke about the deaths. She's also been uh, an advocate of safe supply, certainly uh, yeah. uh, championing some form of change when it comes to the overdose crisis. Yeah, I mean, I look back over the files where Lisa LaPointe really asserted her independence and said things that the current provincial government didn't want to hear. You're right, during the heat dome, I mean, remember, John Horgan started off the heat dome People were dying in the dozens by saying, well, you know, people should take uh, responsibility for their own health and safety. And, uh, you know, if you followed the weather reports, you knew this was coming, which was <laughs> insensitive in the extreme. What, 600 people died? He got away with it. John Horgan used to say the most incredible things, and people still loved him. So uh, that's a matter of record. But Lisa LaPointe launched an inquiry into what went wrong Uh had a death panel that reviewed it and came out with recommendations, which many of which have still since been accepted to avoid such a catastrophe in the future. Another example where she stood up to Horgan, and I think worth noting, uh, Horgan toyed with the idea of involuntary detention of young people 
who have drug overdoses. They would be detained for a few days after the overdose to keep them from overdosing. Again, it was a popular position with the public, but LaPointe came out in opposition to it, as did the child and youth representative, and said, look, uh, what this is going to mean is that when a young person overdoses, their friends are going to be reluctant to go to the authorities because they will worry that the person will be detained afterwards. So um, she managed to derail that, the, the officials, the government toyed with the idea, toyed with the idea. It's pretty much a dead idea now with the NDP, even though Horgan said he was going to bring it back if he won the election. So those are two cases. You mentioned the big case, and that is on safe supply. And I noticed in her statement yesterday after Lisa LaPointe thanked everybody who worked with her and her staff and talked about uh, her 30 years of public service, her three terms as coroner, that she said she had a deep sadness that she was unable to persuade the provincial government to do what was necessary in her view to stem the horrific tide of drug overdoses in British Columbia. She said she would continue to advocate for those reforms after she's gone, and she referred specifically to, I guess, what must have been the most wrenching moment in her time in office. She, she referred to the death panel, review panel, I shouldn't call it a death panel, the death review panel that on November the 1st, she put the report out and it recommended that safe supply drugs be made available without a prescription to make them more widely available. And uh, that, <laughs> what the government did to Lisa LaPointe on that day, whatever you think of what she does and what she recommended was pretty brutal. She, LaPointe calls the press conference. She then opens it up, supports the call for non-prescription access and then opens it up to questions from reporters. And the first question is, what do you think of the letter from the provincial government recommending, rejecting your recommendation? And LaPointe had not had time to read the letter. The letter was given to reporters. Hmm. The, the rejection letter was given to reporters, Jill, before the press conference. Reporters had it in hand, and Lisa LaPointe was blindsided, not not a reasonable way to treat a public servant who you can't question her motivation, even if you may disagree with her advice. It's a pretty shabby treatment. And I wonder if that wasn't the moment, Jill, where Lisa LaPointe went, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to seek another term. I'm going to retire. Right, because she's also said that she's still going to be active, that we're still going to see her in, in some role. So exactly, could it have been just why keep going down this road when, when it's not working? Clearly, they, they're not agreeing with you. Maybe do something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I sympathize to some degree with the provincial government's judgment on this issue. I think that LaPointe got ahead of public opinion on access to safe supply. I think she got ahead of public opinion on something like making drugs available, dangerous drugs available without a prescription. So, you know, I think the provincial government was reluctant to take all of her advice, even though it was coming from experts, uh, because the political will was not there with the public. The public had, was already having a challenge digesting the implications of safe supply and decriminalization as it stands currently without going to the next level. So I think politically, 
I think I can understand the government's position. I can see why they didn't go on a go all that way. But at the same time, I think she could have been treated with more respect on that issue. They could have accepted her, the report and said, we're going to review it. They could have come out a few weeks later with their reasons for rejecting it. Instead, they blindsided her, really, before she had a chance to make the announcement and set her up for a pretty embarrassing press conference. I wasn't at the press conference, but colleagues who were there said she was clearly taken aback that they'd done this to her, that they'd given reporters their rejection letter before she'd had a chance to digest it herself. Yeah, uh, interesting, interesting. And we'll see uh, who fills those shoes. Vaughn, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Bye-bye, Joe. That is Vaughn Palmer, Vancouver Sun columnist and uh, with The View from Victoria. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is a story that has captured news headlines throughout North America. Joseph Emerson, the Alaska Airlines pilot who allegedly attempted to shut off the engines of a passenger plane mid-flight, has been indicted on 84 counts. That happened in an Oregon courtroom. The grand jury indicted Emerson on one count of endangering aircraft in the first degree and 83 counts of recklessly endangering another person. That was one count for each person aboard the aircraft. Well, what led up to this and what did people know about Joseph Emerson? My next guest spoke with him. Mike Baker is the Seattle bureau chief for the New York Times and joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. This is a story I know that a lot of people have been following along and uh, getting the updates on it. You actually talked to the pilot in question, Joseph David Emerson. Can you take us back a little bit and kind of refresh our memories uh, about what is at the heart of this case? Right. So he was an off-duty pilot, Alaska Airlines pilot. He was traveling home from Everett, Washington, down in San Francisco, uh, sitting in the jump seat of the cockpit. and. In the process of the flight, as the flight was going over Oregon, he was accused of reaching up and grabbing the fire suppression handles in the cockpit, which are really designed to shut off the engines of the airplane, and grabbed them, pulled them, um, was stopped just in time by the the other two pilots in the in the cockpit, and then you know he he left the cockpit after that. They went did an emergency landing. He was arrested, initially charged with. 83 counts of attempted murder for trying to take down the airplane. Which you can just imagine for the people that were on that plane and watching that unfold when they realized what was happening uh, would have been some extremely tense moments. It was. I think one of the interesting dynamics there was for a lot of the passengers, I think there was an uncertainty of what exactly was transpiring. Obviously, there was a bit of panic and, and scrambling happening in the cockpit. And then this person walks through down the aisle back to the back of the airplane and no one's really sure what's going on. Then all of a sudden they're getting diverted. Then there's, uh, you know, law enforcement coming on the airplane to, to, to arrest this person. Um, and I think a lot of them have really kind of come to the real, realization since then of what, what nearly happened. Uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, so he was initially charged with 83 counts of attempted murder, uh, saying that he allegedly tried to, to cut the plane engines. Uh, we've heard from his attorneys, and I know you've been covering this. Uh, they had previously said he suffered a panic attack. Uh, he had taken magic mushrooms a couple of days before. Now, you actually spoke with him. What was that conversation like? Yeah, I, I spent some time with him. I spent a few hours with him actually at the the jail in Portland, Oregon. Um, and he was really transparent, really open to talking about everything that happened. Uh, you know, he 
he says that yes, for the first time, about two days, two days prior to the flight, he had taken magic mushrooms for the first time. And after that had really just struggled to figure out what was real and what was not, there was some sort of real break that happened with him mentally where he was lost and confused about, you know, he kept thinking the things around him were, were dreams and not reality. And that continued up to the point he gets in the cockpit. He says all the things, he says all the things that were happening in there kept affirming for him that this was a dream and not real. And there was, he wanted to get home to his family and he felt like he just needed to get out of this dream. And that was a feeling that he just kind of overcame him while he was in the cockpit. And that was the reason he says he wanted to pull the suppression handles in his dream. He thought it would send the plane into a crash and he'd finally wake up from this thing that he was stuck in and be able to go back to reality. Uh, that was sort of his description. He says he never, never intended to hurt anyone that, that day. He really wanted to get back to his wife and kids. And he had text messages, um, you know, showing, talking to his wife about the eagerness to get home, to be with them, to be with the kids, um, that that was his goal that day, not to, not to hurt himself, not to hurt anyone else. And uh, you talked to his wife as well. And like you mentioned, there were text messages. So what was her take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think she, she had described uh, sort of the unusual nature of after he had taken the mushrooms, you know, they had some phone conversations and she could tell that he was just really not himself, that he was sort of emotionally wanting to get home to be with them. And like, it was a fairly unusual sort of set of conversations. She could, she could just tell that something was different. Something was not really right with him at that point. Um, and, and so I think she, you know, it was a total shock to her when she heard the news of what had happened on the plane. Um, and even after he had been arrested and in custody, they had more phone conversations in which she just thought it was really clear that this was not, you know, the normal, normal person. Joe was not sort of acting in the way he normally would. And when you talk about that as well, the fact that he had taken uh, an amount of magic mushrooms a couple of days before, but for the first time, uh, there have been other uh, kind of revelations in this or, or looking back, uh, so some things from his past that have come out as far as uh, depression and other struggles that he had had. Has it come out that there were perhaps parts of his past or, or there were red flags that had the company or had others paid attention to maybe? he would have something would have been done about it or more there would have been some action taken yeah so so about five years ago he his best friend died suddenly and he described having a real struggle in the aftermath of that going to you know going to see a a, a therapist and the therapist at that point had had said you know uh, no you might want to go get some 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 treatment some diagnosis of the potential depression. You might want to get on some antidepressants. And he, his reaction after that, after doing some research was I, like, I can't like I, the, the federal rules in the United States and, and under the FAA are, are really strict when it comes to pilot mental health. Even if you get diagnosed with depression, go on antidepressants, your, your flying status will be suspended for months. And you, a lot of pilots have described it being a real challenge recovering that flying status. And so for him, he felt like there wasn't really a pathway to get treated or deal with this thing he was struggling with. And he felt like he wanted to just deal with it on his own. It felt like that was, that was doable to get some treatments that were sort of 
outside the boundaries of an antidepressant. And so this is, I think his case has really brought in some new attention to that concern that pilots um, dealing with depression or anxiety don't feel comfortable raising their hand and saying, I need help or, or taking the step of getting on medication. And in, in the aftermath of him taking these mushrooms that, that day, and it, actually this the gathering he was at was an event to honor the f- best friend who had died five years prior. And he said after taking the mushrooms, he was really sort of consumed by a lot of the worst moments of his life, um, going back to childhood, some traumas from childhood, struggles in adulthood, and that it, those are sorts of things that sort of sent him into this world of feeling like he was more like he was in hell than in reality. And so, yeah, if he feels like this is a, a, a chance to have a conversation about pilot mental health and how to best support pilots when they're, when they're struggling. And I know the FAA has is at least looking at this, and they did establish a committee looking at pilot mental health and and hopefully looking at at why pilots, like in this case, might choose to to self medicate rather than than go that route, at fearing losing their job. Uh, what is happening with Joseph Emerson as far as he is still facing uh, charges and uh, still going through the court uh, court system? Yeah, so he was initially arrested on the 83 counts of attempted murder. Uh, you know, a grand jury voted this week to actually not continue with charges at that level, but rather one felony count of, of uh, disrupting aircraft and also uh, 83 counts of mis- misdemeanor counts for reckless endangerment for the people who were on board. Much less, fewer, less charges. His attorneys now hope he will actually be able to get out of custody uh, this week while those um, charges proceed. And, and they really believe he had no intention that day. He was not in his right mind. It, they are hoping they'll have a chance before a jury at some point to, to make their case that you know, he really shouldn't be convicted on any of these charges. Well, uh, I know a lot of people will be watching to see what happens next uh, in this case. Mike Baker, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. That is Mike Baker, Seattle Bureau Chief for the New York Times. This is Mornings with Simi. Time magazine has honored Taylor Swift as its 2023 Person of the Year, recognizing her widespread influence and cultural significance. Time's editor-in-chief commended Swift for her ability to transcend geographical barriers and also for her role as both the author and protagonist of her narrative. Joining us now to talk more about the significance of this is Dr. Norma Coates. Norma Coates, Associate Professor of Music, Information and Media Studies at Western University. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. How significant is it that Taylor Swift was chosen and chosen above, uh, out of uh, quite a big pool of people as Time's Person of the Year? Well, I think it's very significant, and I actually really think that Time picked the right person. Uh, as you said, she's so culturally influential, uh, and her, you know, she is in control of her narrative, which a lot of pop stars aren't. Aren't. In fact, I wasn't. I'm not even sure where she falls in that spectrum between pop and other genres. Because she's almost unique. <laughs> uh, there, there has been some criticism, I suppose, or, or at least some questioning of this decision, uh, saying mm-hmm. that that she is an entertainer. Is this really uh, a suitable choice as as person of the year? How do you respond to that? I respond that, yes, absolutely she is. I mean, I'm sure, I didn't research this, but there have been other entertainers named 
person of the year, I'm sure. And, you know, I think as far as cultural significance, she's very significant. I mean, when has a day gone by in the last few months where Taylor Swift hasn't been in the news for, for, very, for many things and usually quite positive? And, of course, she's also brought a lot of money to the NFL since she started dating that player. <laughs> very, uh, very true. What is it about her, do you think, that uh, she, she's got Swifties, her fans, her concerts all sell out immediately, uh, people flock to go see her? What is it about Taylor Swift that so many people find so appealing? Well, one thing, she is a good artist. I, mean, I was listening to some of her music yesterday, and it isn't all the same. But I think of, you know, she's probably the first female artist, perhaps the first white female artist, whose fans have not been totally denigrated and made fun of. And this is since Frank Sinatra, basically, when, when Bobby Soxer kind of rioted in Times Square when he was playing at a thing there. And female, and then there were you know, monkeys, uh, any other pop star always gets insulted. Or, you know, their fans are seen as gullible and they, you know, will will drop the artist as soon as a new one comes along or they age out of it. And that's not true of her. I think that, um, you know, Swifties are very devoted. Uh, They are, and I think it's a two-way relationship. I think she really appreciates her fans and does things to really honor them as well. You know, I think she knows how dependent she is on her fans. And yet you know, her music actually speaks about things that really speak to young women and teenagers. I mean, she, she doesn't hold back on what she, on her, well, you assume it's her dating life. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of what she says, a lot of the, her fans really identify with her on a much more profound level than they do with other stars. Does it also say something about Time's, uh, the, the process that Time uses and who could qualify for Person of the Year, given that this is also uh, a title that's been held by by very influential people? I mean, Nelson Mandela. So to have Nelson Mandela Absolutely. and Taylor Swift both in the title, does it, does it show kind of the diversity of the title? Well, I think it shows the diversity and absolutely. And you know, I, I'm trying to think of who else could have got that title this year, and I'm not coming up with it. Uh, you know, often it's a politician or something, and uh, especially an American politician. And really, this is not a great year for American politicians. Uh, it's also not a great year for tech titans. I mean, Elon Musk is someone who would would have probably a few years ago been been a uh, you know a candidate for that, and now you know, <laughs> no way. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, but, you know, she's had an enormous influence, not just on, you know, because she has this huge fan base, but she brings tons of money into cities that she plays in, she, which is kind of important. She uh, certainly does. Dr. Coates, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much okay. for joining us. Oh, very, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. That is Dr. Norma Coates, Associate Professor of Music, Information, and Media Studies at Western University. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm going to be bringing a motion forward to Council next week that will ask the province to uh, amend the Vancouver Charter and to eliminate the requirement for an elected park board. That was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim yesterday announcing what he is going to be doing and how he is getting the ball rolling when it comes to 
abolishing the park board at a future date. And he's actually going to join us on the show in about an hour from now to talk more about that. But right now we are joined by Sarah Kirby Young, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor, also a former park board commissioner and park board chair. Sarah Kirby Young, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Good morning, Jill. On a rainy Vancouver morning. <laughs> yes, it's supposed to be nicer tomorrow. The uh, The sun will come out. Uh, talk a, a little bit about this, if, if you can. From your, your point of view, this is a big move. It is something we know the mayor campaigned on initially, then said no, they were going to try to fix the park board. He came out yesterday saying he now uh, sees that it cannot be fixed. It is simply uh, too broken, and that's why this uh, move, this is what he is doing. Uh, fr- from your point of view, as both a councillor and a former commissioner in chair. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it is a really big deal and it's a big move. Uh, Vancouver has had an elected park board since the late 1800s. And so, yeah, I have a lot of emotion around this. Um, You know, first thinking about the idea, my first concern was the importance of the protection, permanent protection of parks and green space. And there's really stringent uh, measures that the mayor is proposing uh, to protect that. Um, And I think that's what Vancouverites uh, welcome. I've sat on both sides of the table, so I think I have a unique position. Um, and I think all park board commissioners are really passionate about it. You get really close to community because you're out at community centers and parks, um, but so are councillors. Um, and having sort of sat in both seats now, I can honestly say that I think that there is a lot of unnecessary uh, duplication from the perspective of the people that matter the most. And that's sort of stakeholders like event organizers and community center associations and Moby Bikes and Little League Clubs and all of these groups that we have heard from uh, that have felt frustrated with sort of duplication processes or the timelines that Park Board takes. And so I think it's really trying to, you know, put aside, obviously, the natural emotion that current city commissioners are feeling um, and that people have around that and looking at the structure and what's best for the city. Did you feel that way when you were a commissioner or the chair that there were structural issues that there was perhaps not the need for that elected body? I felt frustrated um, on the part board in the sense that we were still a creature of the city. And, and even though it's called an independent elected part board, we didn't have full independence. So you had to go to the city for your budget um, you maybe didn't have as big a voice at the table in terms of capital planning. And, you know, we've seen how important it is to renew our aging infrastructure. You know, the aquatic center is often referenced in terms of the side of the building, a lot of maintenance issues. But I felt I felt um, challenged or stymied that we couldn't be bolder and do more things because we were sort of like the child of, right? You, you don't have the same level of independence that you do as city council. You don't fully get to approve the budget and you don't have the same ability to move projects forward. Um, You can be a great champion for the park, um, but I think I started to really acknowledge that. And then when you sit on the other side of the table and you're a city councillor, you have things like Moby Bikes where they have, and you really see that you have to go to two different bodies and have two sets of contracts because you want to put your stations where people can dock their bikes. And you have to do that once and go to city council, and then you have to do that a second time, do a second contract and go to the park board. And there's just so many examples like that, uh, that I think if people, you know, take a moment and sort of step back and think about it, um, it really makes a lot of sense. Do you have any idea what the cost savings will be? That was one of the reasons put out as well, that because of that redundancy, this is a way that the city can save money. Uh, There's certainly difference of opinions on that, but do we have an idea on what kind of cost savings this could bring to taxpayers? I I don't think we know that yet. It's too early to tell. Um, I think it's really a question about 
where the funds and the time will be spent. So let's example, you don't have lawyers doing two sets of contracts. It's not just the part where commissioner salaries, that's, that's, that's a sort of small piece of it. Um, but you're not running two separate meetings, for example, and, and going through all of that administration, you've got better alignment with real estate facilities management for capital planning, maintenance schedules uh, for you know, critical assets, all of those things. Um, I think the goal here is really to deliver better parks and get through some of the backlog in trying to catch up with the big infrastructure gap. And so um, I'm looking at this as an opportunity to elevate the level of service for parks um, and fill some of those gaps that we've seen. When did you first find out that the mayor was going to be bringing forward this motion? Uh, well, the mayor had shared it with me. I spoke at the press conference yesterday. And so, you know, he uh, I, I have unique experience as a park board commissioner. Um, and so I had uh, some conversations ahead of the press uh, conference that he had because um, he wanted to have that perspective, um, obviously, given my unique kind of experience have been elected to both. Uh, because some of the other uh, ABC uh, commissioners have said they felt kind of blindsided by this announcement and how quickly it came out. Um, and I, I, I'm not suggesting that that you, you are not genuine, but if you didn't agree with the mayor, you would be turfed from the party, wouldn't you? Uh, I think I've got a pretty strong track record of always speaking my mind. And I think that, you know, ABC and Ken do that when they took me on. And, and people know a lot of my positions on things. As I said at the press conference yesterday, I wouldn't be supporting this move. And I said that very clearly on the record if it didn't include the permanent protection for the parks and the green space. Um, and so I've made that pretty clear. Do you think this could potentially lead as well to more transparency in that even right now we're seeing a, a large amount of trees in Stanley Park being removed because of moth infestations, but not a lot of information as to how that came about, what kind of discussions have taken place. The bike lane in Stanley Park has certainly been contentious as well. Some of the, the commissioners said they felt very pressured by council to vote a certain way on that, but also made the point of saying if you look at the Beach Avenue bike lane, that's a permanent bike lane and it was a decision of council whereas the Stanley Park one is temporary and that having the park board making that decision gives some more leeway how do you how do you respond to that and and going forward how does that translate into more transparency for taxpayers well I think you'll have one elected body that is you know where the buck stops with council and, and mayor and council that is fully fully accountable for those decisions and I do think it's really tough when you have two elected bodies we're all governed by what can be discussed in the public realm and what goes in camera, sometimes with respect to personnel matters, those kinds of things, or, you know, sensitive legal financial conversations. Um, and so we couldn't even talk to each other um, when you sit on one side of the fence because you're bound by in camera and you might be having in camera discussions on the same thing. So if you think about that, that's really ludicrous when you're both uh, trying elected to support and try to work uh, for the betterment of amenities in the city of Vancouver. So um, I would also say with respect to transparency is that, you know, my understanding with respect to in camera is that the mayor could have done this motion in camera because uh, you are talking about impacting people and commissioners and um, uh, there's some legal considerations for changing the Vancouver Charter and he didn't. He's bringing this motion forward in open council for transparency sake uh, so that we can have this dialogue and we have these kinds of conversations around, you know, has the time passed for Vancouver to have elected park board? I would say yes. Um, but people have a chance to weigh in and, and offer their opinion, and that's part of the public debate. I will say that what I'm hearing, and I think the people that are closest to it, have a level of emotion. But I think that generally the broader public sentiment um, really sees the value in this move. What would you say if the province comes back and says, we're not going to rubber stamp it, we're going to put it to a referendum? 
Uh, I think that uh, Ken, uh, Mayor Sim has indicated that we've had very positive conversations with the province, and uh, I think we've seen a provincial government that really wants uh, municipalities to have the ability to move on issues, whether it's, you know, um, more kind of speed around housing or more effectiveness. So I think this would be really consistent with the approach that they've taken, and I think the conversations that the mayor's had have been really positive. Do you think it's it's reasonable then that I think the mayor's timeline he put out said potentially it could take uh, or he thought reasonably it would be about six months. Does that seem reasonable to you? Uh, I do think it's achievable. Um, you know, he mentioned also at the press conference yesterday that there's other changes to the Vancouver Charter. So I think there's an opportunity uh, to do these together. But, you know, ultimately we'll uh, sort of take the lead from the province there. But but again, those early conversations happened. And I don't think it's in anybody's best interest to leave this hanging. I think we want to get on with delivering good quality parks and rec. And so um, I'm hopeful that we'll see that move um, in a in a reasonable, in a, you know, reasonably speedy timeline. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much. As always, thanks for coming on the program this morning. No worries. Have a great day. Stay dry. (laughs) You too. That is Sarah Kirby Young, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor, also former Park Board Chair and Commissioner. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, if you have ever had to navigate the long-term care system in BC, you know it can be very complicated. There can be delays and it can be difficult to even get a diagnosis for a loved one. That is something that has happened to my next guest. And joining me to talk about how this unfolded is Dan Cripps, a Vancouver resident currently caring for his mother who is living with dementia. Dan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, how did this all start? Uh, well, as as one does, my mother was you know, obviously getting older and older and started falling down a lot, and every couple of months was falling to the point where she had to be uh, taken by ambulance to, to Lionsgate Hospital to undergo a series of tests and whatnot. And during that process, her mental health started to decline. I think every time she fell, she... She hit her head, so the dementia continued to get deeper and deeper. And the the process for getting a diagnosis of dementia is complicated because you have to send that person to somebody that knows her. So in this case, my uh, or, or the family GP who we've used for probably 30 years, but his uh, caseload is about four months delayed. So it took four, maybe even five months to to see my GP and have him put my mom through a series of mental health tests. And, you know, he said, yes, obviously she's showing signs of dementia, but because I'm not a a geriatrician, I can't diagnose her with that officially. So it's very hard to get that diagnosis. Um, But then the, the last time she fell, she had to stay in Lionsgate Hospital. And the process of just moving her from the hospital to somewhere where she could have long term care is I'm not going to say disastrous, but it's, it's kind of comical because you know, she was in the hospital for four weeks and didn't really need to stay there. She couldn't really walk, but she couldn't really think for herself too well. And she should have gone right to a, a care home, but there's no care homes available. So she had to eventually uh, be sent to her own home where she lives alone, but she can't be alone. So they assigned 24-hour-a-day, uh, seven-day-a-week care for her. Um, but the process is, is tough because there's so many different people involved. There's Coastal Health, there's Lionsgate Hospital, there was a care worker assigned to her previous to her actually going to the hospital, and 
the, the issue is the, the different parties, they're all wonderful people, but there's no system in place to communicate. So the hospital would have one series of, of rules and people that kind of knew what they were doing, even though they switched out every week she had a new doctor, I guess, just the way the system rotates. Um, and they wouldn't communicate necessarily with her care worker. And then when she was assigned people to uh, an independent company to take care of her on a 24-hour-a-day basis, they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And then when it came time to transfer to a long-term care home, there was no communication there either. So the, the people are great, but there's just too many people involved in the process. And to say the left hand doesn't communicate with the right hand would be an understatement. There's, there's many left hands and many right hands, and it just doesn't seem to be a commonality where people can communicate with one another. And that's, that's the challenge. And uh, I, your frustration, I think, is shared by so many other people, unfortunately, that have gone through similar scenarios. Uh, and it sounds like part of the two two of the main issues was getting that diagnosis, getting an official uh, doctor, uh, a gerontologist, somebody to give you the the give your mother the diagnosis, but then also finding a space and that critical shortage of spaces. There's a huge shortage shortage of space, and I guess there's there's two lists. There's the list you put an elderly person on so he or she can eventually get into long-term care. And then there's what they call the emergency list, which is somebody who needs to go now, who can't be at home, shouldn't be in the hospital, needs long-term care. But that wait list is, is, is two to three months, and you don't you can choose your top three preferences, but they say it's the you know, first bed available, which could be anywhere, you know, in, the, in this case, anywhere in Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, we lucked out and found a place in Vancouver. She, she's from North Vancouver, so fairly close. And frankly, that just happened yesterday. And I got a call uh, 24 hours beforehand saying, hey, we found a place for your mother. Move her tomorrow, which is great. But I, I have a two-seater car. Uh, she can't walk. So the, even, even that process is, so thank you for finding me a space. How do I get her there? Well, you just have to get her there. You could take a taxi. Like, that's an option, but it's kind of hard to put a, you know, an, a, an older person who can't walk into a taxi, and you know, it's it's a process for sure. And I think, as somebody who hasn't gone through this process before, as many of us or most of us haven't, we just we don't know what we don't know, and there's so many questions that. During the process, you have to figure out for yourself. For example, we need to bring in a hospital bed for her. Okay, great. How, how do I do that? Well, you have to be there tomorrow go deliver it at noon. Well, I don't live in North Vancouver. I'm not there tomorrow at noon. I have to go and rent a truck or hire a mover to clear out her bedroom to make room for a new hospital bed. And then simple questions. Does it come with bedding? What, what What's the procedure for... For it arriving, how does my mother get get home when she goes to the long term care home? What do I have to bring? These these things just aren't made clear, and you don't know what questions to ask until you really are asked those questions yourself. Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? I don't know. I've never done this before. Right. And Dan, do you think would it help? I mean, does does that would that have changed had had she gotten the dementia diagnosis diagnosis sooner, or or what else do you think needs to change to make this so families are able to navigate this system? I think there needs to be one entity involved that 
oversees the whole process, but one person to communicate with all the parties. So if she's in hospital and Lionsgate Hospital's in charge, that's great. But that's not the entity that's that was assigned to her as her care worker. And it's not the entity that's going to be taking care of her at home. And it's not the entity that's going to be uh, the long-term care facility. There needs to be one person that communicates with all four of those different groups that coordinates the effort and then lets the family know what's going on. And 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 again, I've, we've talked, unfortunately, to others that have been in, in this scenario and, and have raised other concerns as well. Have you talked to the healthcare providers or asked anybody why it's like this and, and if there is that potential for changing things? I did, and I think there is, but it's... When I, when I spoke with the care worker, she said, yeah, I guess there's a bit of a gap in communication between the hospital and the care facilities or the party that's uh, responsible for taking care of her at home. And I think sending somebody from the hospital to their home because there's no beds available is a relatively new uh, process that hasn't quite been figured out. And putting myself in or seeing my mother yesterday when I had to move her to the long-term care home, you know, obviously she didn't want to go. She wanted to be at home. And I just said, Mom, this, this is your new home. And you can't be at home anymore because somebody has to be there to take care of you 24 hours a day. And there just isn't, you know, that's not practical. It's not even fair for uh, a person to be, you know, to have to be with another person 24 hours a day. And, you know, frankly, she should have went from the hospital to a care facility and not made that, that step at home where, you know, she just slept or sat and stared at the TV for the entire time she was there, but it, it's unfair to be moving people around. She should have went from the hospital to a care home. It just wasn't available. So we, you know, we obviously need more facilities for for older people. The population is is clear, clearly aging. There's more and more people needing needing help, and we need. You know, we there's, there's so many inefficiencies in the system. I guess that. You see so much money being wasted on too many people being involved in a situation like this where if it was a private business, it would just it would run better. There's things you see, you know, for example, we brought in two months worth of medication to the care facility yesterday, and they, they won't use that because it doesn't come from their doctors. Well, that, that's just a waste. Right. There's so many things that could be done better, could be done more efficient. And you know, even trying to get that that diagnosis of dementia, waiting months to see my GP, when it turns out he couldn't actually give that diagnosis. Well, let's cut the GP out of that and put it into the hands of somebody who can actually give it that that diagnosis without having to go to the GP first. It just seems like a wasted step and a, a waste of time and a waste of money. All right. Well, Dan, I appreciate you so much raising these concerns and pointing these out. We are right out of time, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. All appreciate right. it. That is Dan Cripps, a Vancouver resident caring for his mother with dementia. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, I'm not sure of a time when we talked more about the park board, uh, well, in its whole history since its establishment in 1888. But we are talking about it because, as you know, Vancouver's mayor has announced he is bringing forward a motion that could start the process of abolishing the elected park board. And Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Mayor, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Jill. Thank you very much for having me. Well, certainly uh, a lot of feedback on this. I'm sure you were expecting that when you made this announcement. When did you make the decision that you were going to bring forward this motion and wanted to abolish the park board? You know, we've had sort of... um conversations. We've been doing our due diligence. We actually tried to uh, make the park board work and just through uh, tons of conversations with uh, councillors, with park board commissioners, with uh, uh, members in the community, people that use our parks. I think it, you know, the the thing was forming over time. And I think over the last, um, you know, a few weeks, it really came to a head. Does it have anything to do with your pick not being chosen as the chair of the park board? Not at all. Not at all. We're talking about a structural thing here. And so um, if I pull back a bit, uh, if you actually look at the structure of the park board, it is fundamentally broken. It does not work. And you can drop seven superstars uh, into uh, the the structure and it wouldn't matter because at the end of the day, if you have more than one group accountable for anything, um, no one's accountable. And that's what we have. We have an elected park board and we have city council. And even the auditor general mentioned that, you know, the long term strategic um, goals of uh, the park board aren't aligned with the city. And so right there, you just have, you know, a lot of um, opportunities for things falling through the cracks and things getting delayed. And we're seeing it in our parks. And so we are trying, we have to change the structure if we want our parks to be world-class assets again. But you must have at some point thought that it it was fixable because you did originally say you were going to abolish it and then then said, no, maybe we can fix this thing. So so what was it that happened that got you back to the point where it was no longer fixable? Yeah, when I when I look at the state of our parks and uh, where they are, um, that really led to this decision. For example, you look at the aquatic center, the side of a building fell off. Uh, you look at the Stanley Park train, that thing was going to go to the uh, scrap heap and we actually had to work around that and go to private donors and uh, look for outside help to help us. When you speak to Trout Lake, literally, these you literally have families and kids that actually want to improve their diamond, um, their field, and they've even raised money, but they're being stymied by, uh, uh, you know, the park board. You look at um, every time we, um, you know, uh, filming companies or uh, the movie industry, they want to pull permits, they actually have to go to two different groups if they want to, let's say, film and do chilling park they need to get a a permit for the park and another one uh to park their cars from the city of vancouver and it just adds it's craziness you look at malkin bowl uh that asset is a gem it's been severely neglected we even have people that will privately donate to fund it and um they're not the part they're being rejected the honda celebration of lights moby bikes it took five years to get a docking station put at Kitts Community Center because, once again, two different jurisdictions, two sets of pay, uh, permits, two sets of paperwork, legal agreements, uh, Spanish Bank washrooms. We have a broken water pipe. And because of the cross-jurisdictional issues, we actually don't have war- working bathrooms um, in parts of Stanley, uh, Spanish Bank for over a year now. And the Sun Yat-sen Gardens, they've been waiting seven years 
to uh, renew their lease with Park Board. Uh, it still hasn't happened, and that's actually affecting their ability to invest in that asset going forward. And I, I want to stress, Sun Yat-sen Gardens is the first uh, park of its type outside of China. And so, sorry, I get really passionate about this because I think, you know, there are a lot of individuals or there's some individuals uh, who are passionate about the, the park board and I love them for that. That's great. But we're missing the bigger picture. Our parks need significant work and the structure doesn't work. And I'm passionate about our parks, just like all the other individuals that are coming on these calls and uh, making these comments. Um, but the current way just isn't working. And if we want our assets to be better, we have to do something differently. And this is what we're doing. Uh, you mentioned as well that there would be savings for taxpayers. Uh, the park board is about $170 million a year operation, uh, managing many of the things that you just mentioned. How does bringing it into the city under the city's guidance, making it part of city structure, how does that save the taxpayer money? Well, okay. So, from an operational perspective, if you have, if you're reporting to the, uh, if you have two different um, sets of goals, like once again, I mentioned that, you know, uh, the park board goals uh, aren't aligned with the city's goals, and that that's not even coming from me. That's coming from the auditor general, an independent third party. Um, when you have people running in two different directions, um, you, there's a lot of confusion, and they spin their wheels, and then you you end up with things like. You know, uh, Moby Bikes taking five years to get uh, their docking stations uh, put in. And so when you collapse it or when you fold the uh, park board under uh, the city of Vancouver, you have one goal. You have all your people going in the same direction. It takes way less time. And so by default, you get, you know, more things done with the same amount of resources. And so when we talk about savings, what we're really talking about here is operational efficiency so we can actually, you know, have our people working on the right stuff and improving our assets. That's where you're going to see the lift. Uh, we heard from uh, the chair, Brennan Bastiovansky, yesterday. Uh, he said uh, that uh, he uh, that you had promised him that you that he would be able to finish his term as a park board commissioner. He said uh, on the Jazz Joe Hall show on this station, he feels like an idiot for believing you. He's heartbroken. He says you did a backflip and that you are forcing ABC councillors to do that, that he feels betrayed. And he's pleading uh, to the premier to let the commissioners finish their term and to hold a referendum. How do you respond to that? Somebody who was until yesterday, part of ABC. Well, first, I, I do want to acknowledge um, Brennan and everyone who has uh, who's currently serving as a park board commissioner and everyone who served in the past. Um, love them for it. And once again, this is not about the people. It's about the system. And so and let, you can drop seven superstars into that uh, process. doesn't matter. You can't fix the system. Um, look, uh, those comments were, uh, you know, uh, those comments weren't made to Brennan. Um, and uh, if you actually look what I've said in the media, so we do have a record. Uh, if you go to uh, Alyssa Thibault's interview of me back in May of 2022, I was very clear. We are going to try to fix the elected park board. And if we cannot fix it, we would go to the province and look for changes. And we are doing exactly what I stated in the media. And so uh, I know there are a lot of uh, emotions right now, um, and I know a lot of people are saying a lot of things, and all i got to say is, you know, go back to what I've publicly stated uh, in front of uh, 
you know, TV cameras. And, uh, you know, I, I'm highlighting Alyssa Thibault's uh, interview back in uh, May of 2022. It, it's out there. Um, sure. Very sure. Clear. Uh, with the timeline, I know you said yesterday that this could potentially be done within six months. What happens now, though? You've had three Park Board Commissioners leave ABC. They've now said they're going to align with the Green Party Commissioners. What happens if they start taking on projects or doing things and passing things that you're not in favour of? Well, once again, um, anything that uh, makes sense, uh, we will support as a council. These things are not personal. We put the city of Vancouver and our parks and our recreational facilities above any you know, person or party. And so my expectation for all elected officials in the city of Vancouver is they put uh, you know, the residents first. And as long as they do that, there won't be any issues. Um, and stating um, you know, uh, the obvious, and you know, this is uh, the, the part of the problem that uh, the structure is broken right now. Um, you know, even if we didn't make any changes, uh, the the park board votes on things, and then they have to come to city council uh, for approval, anyways. And so that's what we're talking about here. We we've just literally added another step, more confusion, a lot of uh, workflow and regulatory red tape, and that's why a lot of these projects are getting stalled uh, for five, seven, fifteen years. Like it takes literally fifteen years to build a community center now in the city of Vancouver, if you're lucky, and so. That's what we're trying to address here. And so, you know, um, you know, nothing really changes at this point. Anything uh, the, the Park Board Commissioners come up with will, if they're looking for capital, are going to have to be uh, you know, approved by City Council anyways. And we will make those pragmatic uh, discussion or decisions uh, in chamber. Do you already have assurances from the province that they will support you on this? You know, we've been in active conversations with the province, and what I can say is we have a, uh, I think we have a great working relationship with them. Um, they've been fabulous, um, and it's our experience that uh, they, they've shown in the past, and uh, the direction that, 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 that they're giving is they care about the residents of Vancouver, and they will do what's in the best interests of the residents of Vancouver. And as we, you know, uh, plead our case here, um, you know... Um, is that a gap? You know what? Um, we, we have uh, good indications, but, you know, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I think the merits of getting rid of or folding in the elected park board into city council are incredibly strong. I do want to state that we're the only city in Canada and there's only one other city in North America that has an elected park board. And I, with all due respect to Cultus Lake, doesn't really count. Um, it's, it's literally a park and there's only 1,300 people that live there. Um, but with the exception of Minneapolis, we're the only other jurisdiction in North America that has an elected park board. And there's not a single city in North America that's rushing to institute an elected park board because I think everyone's figured out it just doesn't work. Mayor Sim, we'll have to leave it there. I appreciate you making the time for the show today. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That is Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. We'll